Welcome to ChangeBoard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. My name is Karen Filfalam, and I'm ChangeBoard's Deputy Editor. Before we start, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review or rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We want your feedback. Today, I'm discussing the value of personal principles and how to have difficult conversations with psychologist John Amici. A former NBA basketball star, John is the CEO of Amici Performance Systems, a non-executive director of the Central Manchester University Hospitals NHS Trust, and a global ambassador for Amnesty International. In 2007, John became the first NBA player to speak publicly about being gay. In this wide-ranging interview, John talks candidly about image and resilience growing up as a six-foot-plus black child in 70s Manchester, why his personal principles led him to turn down a $17 million contract while in the NBA, and why honesty and difficult conversations are at the heart of true leadership. Enjoy the podcast. John, welcome to this Change Board Future Talent podcast. Um, I thought a good place to start maybe for our audience, for people that may have heard you, may not have done, is to go back to the kind of beginning. So... Um, you were born in Boston, I in was. America, mm-hmm. to a Nigerian father and an English mother, um, who separated when you were quite young, moved back to Manchester or Stockport, Stockport I believe, yeah. when you were three, is mm-hmm. that correct? Um, to be near your mother's family. What was life growing up for you like in Stockport? What do you remember about those times? I mean, I have roundly warm feelings of, of, of growing up. My grandma was lovely. My granddad was a bit abrupt and a bit old-fashioned. Okay. Um, in all the ways that I suppose are would be troubling now, um, you know, it didn't understand a mother who who wanted to have a or was willing to have a life without a father around. Um, you know, mum who's willing to not have a partner. It was kind of old fashioned. It was even a bit weirded out by the fact that my mother was a doctor. I think, <laughs> um, but roundly really warm. My mother made sure that we were never left wanting. Never felt deprived never felt um you know frightened we we were well prepared for life through her uh yeah and what were your what were your interests as a child were you was was Uh, reading in cake (laughs) any particular cakes no no it didn't it didn't matter reading in cake were the two things that i was most endorsed in i loved to read read asimov when i was seven along with things like the hardy boys even though they're all the same um I loved I loved to read. My family was very big on that. Uh, most of our most of our trips out would involve a trip to the library, okay. um, where we were always allowed to get as many books as we could carry, uh, and then encouraged to consume them, you know, voraciously. And then on the cake side, I wasn't encouraged to consume them, but I did. And what was it about Asimov particularly that that attracted you? There's a great quote, and I, I I've, I've com- you know, I can never do it verbatim, but essentially Asimov says that, that whilst many people think that science fiction is the, is the stuff of nonsense, um, what they don't realize is that science fiction is an existential metaphor for the human condition. <laughs> and uh, I always think that that's, that's my reverse rationalization for my love of science fiction. It was the idea that you could see these worlds where the future was highlighted with such vivid detail that it's almost like a, a recalling of a memory 
the idea that people could see a world that despite its strifes and struggles, which is, which is always the, the center of mm -hmm. science fiction, despite the worries about the impact of technology on the future, despite the ethical dilemmas that are always presented in science fiction, human beings overcome. And there's something quite lovely about that. And, uh, I mean, yeah, was it something about kind of esca the escapism side of it as well? Or, you know, being able to get away from, from everyday life? Or is it just the, the kind of the, the psychological angle that you're talking about? I mean, I think the, just being able to dive into another world was amazing. I mean, I, I, the idea that, that you, are, you are gone from whatever the packaging of you is for a, for a moment and all of a sudden you're a you know an alien martial artist <laughs> who, who runs around the, the galaxy saving lives or you're a you're a robot an android that is becoming sentient and has a responsibility to save the human race and in the case of some of the Asimov stuff it doesn't matter but you leave your packaging behind and and you know, I didn't have overly problematic packaging, but as one of the few black people in Stockport in the 70s, and as a massive black kid in Stockport in the mm. 70s, I stuck out like a sore thumb, and many of my interactions happened on that basis uh, of what people saw, not what people could gather of my brain. So it's quite nice when you can just enter this space where, you know, one of the characters is a lizard man, so being a big black person from Stockport hardly makes you unusual. And you've talked about that before in, in kind of your book and some other interviews where, you know, you were seen as someone that should be um, physically good at sport, you know, a rugby player, mm -hmm. you know, a basketball player, even though you didn't obviously play basketball till you were kind of 17, you, you picked up basketball there. How, how did that kind of affect your psyche as you were growing up? You know, you wanted to be known for kind of your, your mind and you wanted to escape into that and, and sport wasn't your thing when you were growing up, was it? Yeah, sport? I mean, it's still not my thing. Uh, sport was never my thing, really. Um, yeah, it's, it's not that I wanted to be recognized for my mind. I mean, I might have that now, actually, more than I had back then. <laughs> but um, it's simply that I was confused by the fact that even after talking to me, people would still not be able to differentiate between what they think my body should be doing mm. and what they know from my conversation my mind is capable of. Um, it just seemed incredibly limiting to me, the idea that the picture of me that, that appeared in the retinas of other people overwhelmed any, any impression I could ever make through my verbal or other interactions. It was just incredible to me. And do you find that's changed at all as you've got it? It must have changed, no. but it's still a similar no, sort of feeling. it hasn't changed. I mean, it, I, if I'm not working, I don't leave my house because okay. it's exhausting. It's exhausting to hear people ask me what the weather's like up there. It's exhausting to have people ask me or tell me very often as they do, you should play basketball, which is <laughs> ironic and stupid on any number of levels, but is irritating. Mm it's exhausting to not be believed when I tell people I'm a psychologist or the director of a hospital. Um, it's exhausting. And also I have no recourse because the recourse that, you know, many right-minded listeners would have was the idea that you can get indignant and, and say, don't you know who I am? Or I've got PhDs, damn it. Or any of these responses, but none of those help. They mm. only exacerbate the situation. Uh, it happened in the airport the other day. Um, Somebody came up to me and said, so I was coming back to England, and so it was an English person stood in the queue with me, and he was like, yeah, so you, you must have been a rugby player. And I was thinking, 
when you tell people what they must have done, you really are telling me, you really are telling them what you think they're good for. And by okay. extension, that they aren't good for anything else. And I was like, no, I'm a doctor. And the look on his face was one where he, he looked like I had insulted him. And he then went into a diatribe about, oh, I didn't mean anything by that. It's like, well, you kind of did. You've taken it on first glance. There's no depth for that whatsoever. You have walked up to a stranger and an initiated conversation. And now I'm apparently the, the a-hole for, for pointing out that you've made some rather grand assumptions. And people wouldn't do it to other people. Oh, That's no. That's a thing. Plus, you, you never come... Well, only the rudest of people would go up to a, an overweight person and say, hey, so sumo for you, or, you know, <laughs> you must have trouble managing your food intake, or you, you just wouldn't comment people with dwarfism you don't go up to them and ask them how tall they are not unless you're the most crass and ridiculous of persons you just never would you wouldn't go up to them and say hey circus so you're in the circus like no <laughs> but some version of that nonsense is is the is the per, the purview of almost every conversation i have so going back to when you were now a teenager perhaps what was it you wanted to do what was it you, where did you want to go you want to be a psychologist I want to from be that a psychologist age? yeah and yeah. the plan was to go and study in the UK. To Leeds. To Leeds. Yeah. And how far did you get down that road? Uh, not particularly far. Well, I mean, um, the, the goal to be a psychologist never changed. It never varied. Uh, the type of psychology I was interested in varied reasonably radically. Um, but there was, no, there was no challenge to, to, to not going. It was simply that I was going to move to another country to do it. Um, I discovered basketball. And I always emphasize this to people. I didn't discover basketball from the perspective of, oh, I love this sport. I love running around. Um, I like being good at it when I did get good at it, but I didn't get good at it for about three years until I was passably good enough to say I'm good at this. So in the early days of me playing in the UK, those were the days that I decided to go to America. Okay. In those, in those moments, I was not good at basketball. <laughs> not good. I simply was in this environment where everywhere I looked and I use this example a lot in workplaces, everywhere I looked, the people who looked at me reflected back my potential. And yet outside of that basketball environment, everywhere I looked, people reflected back that I was some kind of monster to be avoided, to be scared of, to laugh at, whatever. And so you suddenly find yourself as a, as a kid in this environment where everywhere you look, all you can see is your potential. It's intoxicating. Okay. So in my head, it's like, if it's good, with these random blokes, who are still my friends to this day, actually, the entire crew, um, if it's good with these random people in a gym, a horrible community gym in Cholton, then what must be, it be like if I'm in the country where it's played best? It literally was that equation, as naive as that is. I thought, if this is this good, maybe a gym that doesn't have water leaks and smell of <laughs> urine in America, where the sun shines always and there's hot dogs, would be better. And that was it. That was my law into sport. But uh, there's almost a sense of, of, of modesty there. I mean, you know, it's one thing to think this is going to be where I want to be. This is where America's the place to be. This is the best place it could be. But to be able to then carry that through, I believe, you know, you said you had, um, you previously said that with your mother, you formulated something you called the, the plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not, I don't know it's anything to be modest or immodest about. I mean, it's very practical. Everything okay. I did was deeply practical. I mean, we remind people on a regular basis, the work that a lot of the work we do in leadership is reminding people of the mundanity of, 
of excellence in leadership. It's it's really not about episodic high achievement, uh, episodic moments when you rise to some Arthurian channel uh, challenge. It's really more like um, a consistent a, a consistent battle with really mundane ordinary challenges and so how do you get to america you, you, there's a volume of letters that need to be written to strangers to, to compel them to respond so how many letters did you write Three thousand. Three thousand. and it was pre-email so there was no copy and paste <laughs> unfortunately so we i wrote three thousand letters to america saying i'm six foot nine black english guy been playing for a year and a half i've been or a year whatever it was at that point i've been I'm keen to play basketball at the highest levels. Are you interested in helping me on that journey? And how many came back? Three. Only yeah. one of them said yes. And that was the one? That was the one I went to. But that's, I mean, there's nothing about that that's profound. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about that that any child could not do. That's how boring it is to achieve remarkable things. It is dull, repetitive, and then the weight is excru excruciating. Mm -hmm. And then there's luck. Uh, but none of that luck can come into play. I don't come across Ed Heinchel, the, the high school coach that took me in in the end. I don't come across him unless I write 3,000 uh, 3, letters. That's it. But it's not, it's not hard. It's not magical. It's not legendary. It's just... People have applied this kind of... And they do, and they're, do. and they're so wrong. Because <laughs> what it does is it mythologizes okay. excellence in a way that's not useful. It's very Syedian. Um, so it makes it seem like it's unattainable for the vast majority of people. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, there are really practical elements here. So I'm 6'9", I was 6'8", or something mm -hmm. at the time. And and so being 6'8", and being able to put 6'8", into that letter helps, right? But I do also know of other people who went off to, there's a kid who, who went to a place called Riordan College, a Riordan High School, I'll never forget, Riordan High School in San Francisco. And he was five foot eight. He was one of my teammates. He just wrote a letter. He just wrote letters. And that's how he got there. Somebody thought, huh, reasonably smart English kid coming to my school, be an interesting cultural exchange. And I don't think they ever thought anything of it. He never made it to the NBA, nor was he destined to. But boy, did he have an amazing experience for two years in an American high school. And, and how do you deal with the setbacks within that? Because obviously I read... You know, again, when you were 17, 18, perhaps before you went out to America, you, you had an injury to your to your hands. You know, it kind of showed me now there's still scarring across it. Chopped my hand off, yeah. It was not not uh, not intentional. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I fell through a window and cut my hand off. Uh, essentially everything, every dorsal, tendon, nerve, artery uh, was completely severed. Um I was in Anglesey at the time. I was on a biology field trip with my school when it happened. Um, and they took me to Bangor Hospital. And I wouldn't let them call my mother because I, <laughs> I knew she worked really hard and I didn't want her to wake her up in the middle of the night. But it's just one of those things. You, you, it happens. You have to kind of deal with it. It was depressing because I just found this thing where I was around these people who were amazing. And now it was all being taken away. And I'm a bit of a drama queen. So... I did, uh, I did catastrophize the situation. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, in fairness, it was a pretty catastrophic it injury. Sounds, it looks even now. But, oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's still gone as looks nowadays. People will move away from me on the tube when they notice. <laughs> um, <coughs> but the, 
the, I, I, I did create a kind of a mythological catastrophe around it that my life was over and all the things that I loved were going to go away. And my sure. mother was really helpful in just beating the groundedness back into me, saying, yeah, no, no. I mean, that some things are real about this. Is it going to be really painful for the first X number of months? Yep, as it heals. Is there a chance you'll never get your feeling back in the top of your hand? Yep, that, that still hasn't come back to this day. Okay. Um, is there a chance you end up with a, what they call a claw hand when the, the adhesions take place if you don't do your rehab properly and you end up with a hand that won't move? All of these things are possible. But it also is possible, as has happened, that I am ambidextrous. Um, both in terms of my life and in terms of basketball. So I can work with my left as easy as my right. And without that, I'm not in the NBA. So you switched. You yeah. said to switch hands. You have to. It needs must. For six months, seven months, I couldn't do anything but use my left hand. Okay. So well, what I could do is either do nothing or I could go to the gym and have the most unfulfilling sessions working on a left hand that had been basically a vestige uh, of my thoughts previous. And that's what I did. And so now you're out in, in America in mm -hmm. uh, college. You're, you're studying psychology, I believe, at the time. Absolutely. And obviously playing on the, on the college basketball team, which is you know, a huge thing in, in, in the States. Did you feel like you belong now? Was this the right environment for you? How did it feel? Yeah, I mean, being a college athlete, people don't realize in the UK, I suppose, that in America, you are essentially already a, a mini pro. It's got all the trappings of being professional. You're traveling huge distances to play against uh, neighboring and not so neighboring teams. Um, basketball takes up a huge amount of your life. You, you get up early in the morning and you go to the gym uh, to have a workout, an individual workout. You go to classes, you eat lunch, and then you'll go and lift weights, and then you'll go to some more classes, and then you'll have practice, and then you'll eat with the team, and then you'll sleep, and that's life. That's that's the student athlete life um but you know on a, on a campus of a hundred thousand people which is what penn state is it's a massive massive university everybody knows who you are you walk everywhere and you know pretty much whether you have a good game or bad as long as you work hard people will yell out your name and want to have your autograph and want to pat you on the back and well, that must have felt different obviously talking you know, about being in the UK being bookish, you know, being oh, I mean, that, that area. That and then didn't, all of a that didn't change. That didn't change. I mean, I'm still not much of an interactor with humankind, if I can, outside of a professional environment. Sure. Which I'm, which I'm, it's not that I'm not good at it. It's just it's energy expensive. Um, so I, I, I still, I enjoyed the interaction. I enjoyed the recognition. But I still, you know, would rather be in my dorm room mm -hmm. and not and not engaging with people unless I had to. And then from the college basketball, how did you make the leap into, into the NBA? There's a, a system called a draft okay. where, where you are ranked as a player and then the top 50 players get drafted into the NBA. I unfortunately was not listed as one of the top 50 players and I watched players who I knew I was better than mm. uh, get drafted into the league. Um, and so I had to go a different route. I had to... Um, I had to find myself a new trainer because uh, obviously once you're out of college, you can't continue to use that system. So I found myself a new trainer, um, essentially had no money. So got into, had to get into debt just to get the trainer to move to Phoenix, Arizona from t Toledo, Ohio, uh, where the family had, that took care of me was, um, got into about 30 grand's worth of debt really just to get a flat 
a little one bedroom efficiency uh in the middle of in the middle of uh, nowhere and a trainer and a car um and then just work out like my life depended on it because i knew at the end of that summer i would have to go to what they call a pre uh, a, a pre-season camp which essentially means you and every other wannabe who thinks they have a shot goes and then you eliminate each other on a, for six days you work out you play against each other and every day uh, a manager comes in the locker room and your name is up written on tape or whether you're there or not above your above your above your locker and then as you sit in the locker in the mornings a manager will come and wow rip off a name and that's how you know you can take the kit that you're wearing and then get going and i did that for a week watching as 30 people was whittled down to about eight uh and it was whittled down to eight after the last day we had 10 on the last day whittled down to eight and then of those eight people they only took three into the into the season and, and i was one of them i mean again what's striking about this is the is the the perseverance and and the self-belief in it or does that does it not feel like that to you do you just feel like you're doing what you think you should be doing you're doing you're following the steps to achieve your goals i mean i feel like if if we were trying to talk if we're trying to give advice to a children i feel like isn't that just the advice you'd give you work as hard as you can control what you can control um prepare with real skill and foresight um it just feels like that's what you do you know know yourself know your your weaknesses and strengths and and play to your strengths but practice on your weaknesses it just i mean this is like it's almost bordering on sophistry isn't it really it's just it's so it's so it's so it's like it's in the middle of a fortune cookie it's, it's that ridiculous <laughs> okay. but there's nothing complex about it um again if you can I, I i continue to come back to this point that if you can tolerate mundanity the the repetitiveness required in order to be really good at something you can achieve almost anything because it is just that can you just be diligent and practice with real focus and execution very discreet often boring skills then you can be good really good i want to i want to look now kind of at the the kind of ethics and perhaps some of the principles that underlie you personally mm -hmm. and that business leaders can use in their organizations um i mean principles seem to be a big thing to you obviously i read while in the nba you you kind of famously turned down a contract with the la lakers mm -hmm. Uh, for seventeen million dollars, was it to, as a contract? Yeah, yeah. Uh, to stay with your team at yep. the time, as a matter of principle. Yes. Do you? I mean, what was that about? What was the principle, and how important was it to be able to stick to that? Um, well, I mean, principles are everything. Um, my, you know, my mother always used to say, "You can't be a part-time person of principle," um, and it's true. The the moment. The moment you buck the trend of being principled, you are no longer principled. It's what people do in business and outside of business. We are principled when people are watching, and that's not principle. We are principled when the stakes are low, when we have to give up something that is relatively meaningless to us. 
But the moment something's really important to us, all of a sudden that's the real test of principle, that you still behave in that way that is that is in that is important and then incongruent with your and congruent with your values at that point. And so for me, I wanted to play for the Lakers. It was the team I'd always wanted to play for. I knew they'd win four championships. But I also knew that the year before the Magic were the only team to give me a shot in the NBA. Uh, they had given me my chance to rise to prominence. And whilst I knew that there was no guarantee, in fact, I thought pretty likely that they would dump me the year afterwards when they had more money in under the cap to get a new player, a better player. I knew they'd do that. But this is the difference between, that's why I, we always highlight this to our clients, right? There's a big difference between loyalty and principle. And you should always try and engender principle because loyalty is a is a short-term thing it, loyalty implies keeping tabs of favors okay like I, I do this for you because at some stage in the future you'll do this for somebody else and i think that is nowhere near as personally satisfying nor is it anywhere near as useful as just having people in your organization who just behave congruently because that's who they are that's what they stand for so for me, I didn't want to turn down the Lakers. I really wanted to go to the Lakers. They showed me a house that I could have bought on the beach. <laughs> I remember going there and watching the waves crash, uh, watching the surfers surf in the front. And he pointed out that one of the coaches lives just around the corner and Shaq lives over there. And I was like, this would be amazing. This is, you know, But what, you had this voice in the back of your head. It's everything that I wanted. But you can't be a part-time man of principle. The, the Orlando Magic asked me to stay. They did not give me any caveats or promises or anything else. They did point out that I'd, they'd been the only team that had seen my potential. And I thought, yeah, that's fair. So I stay. Why do you think then so many other people in business and in life aren't as principled? I mean, trust in organizations, whether it be business, politics, oh, see, this media. Is, this is why loyalty is no good, because okay. loyalty requires trust. Principle only requires trust in me. Okay. I knew, the, I knew the Orlando Magic, the moment I said yes, would be looking around for who would be the best power forward option, my position option for them the year afterwards. I was no, I'm not an idiot. I was aware that I'm not <laughs> the best power forward in the NBA at that stage. I was good, but I was certainly not the best power forward in the NBA. And I knew that it was likely that they would be looking for the best power forward in the NBA they could afford, which would be more than me, better than me. But principle isn't about them, it's about me. Principle is about when people ask me now, uh, when I work with clients on something super sensitive and it never seems enough that I am tied to all the ethics requirements of every psychologist and therefore could lose my license if I did something in a, an ethical. But the thing that always seems to get people is, is when I, they most people know about this story when they, they do rudimentary research apparently it's one of the things that comes up early and and it seems to give people great solace that when you ask what is my word worth my word is worth 20 million dollars <laughs> that seems to give people some solace if you'd actually turn down real tangible money turn down championships turn down this idealized picture of what he wants then maybe when he works with us we can trust this guy do you think that means that people haven't got their own principles in order? I, I, I don't know whether they do or they don't, but I know that all that matters is that I do. I will tell people how I'll operate with them. Um, 
uh, I will tell them I, we you know the sessions we do a lot of sessions that are Chatham House rule mm. so that we can gather information from people with full confidence from them that nothing they say will be attributed or come back to bite them and we work with a lot of organizations unfortunately who still think that when I it's just a narrative line that I that I tell to people and I I inform them that no it's not a narrative line you will never know who I spoke to if you try and monitor that then that's the kind of thing that would force this agreement to end because all that matters is I have principle because that it's my job to monitor I can't control what other people do um, and for the businesses what are the challenges that you see them facing um I mean the ongoing drop in engagement that appears to be happening in a lot of businesses is a function of trust it's a function of inauthenticity it's a function of an incongruence between what organizations say is the experience that people can expect within an organization and what is actually delivered as the experience. So there's lots of ways that principle would have an impact on, on those elements. So it's, it's not, this is not really esoteric. It's really practical. If you promise a certain type of experience to people, then deliver on that experience or stop promising it. So there are two options. You can either work on your culture, your leadership, to ensure that you live up to the beautiful stuff that nearly every organization has on their website, sure. or change what's on your website so you're not lying to people. This is, this is, people think this is a millennial thing. It's not a millennial thing. The, the, the boomers are simply, A, in lead, positions of leadership, and so for them, maybe it's less important coming towards the end of their careers, so they feel they have you know, less time that they have to ignore this incongruence. Millennials have loads of time. The centennials and Zeds who are coming after them have even more time, and they're about tired of having people lie to them, and I don't think that's crazy. No, and it, and it seems to be a wider societal thing as well. We, you know, we see it in, in the trust politics. Trust in most institutions, in politics, is, is dissipating fast. But it, it is still about this incongruence, right? Okay. We care about all our citizens, but then we secretly find out Windrush a generation of being thrown out of the country and deported, even though they're British citizens. Uh, we care about all our citizens, and a year after Grenfell, you still have um, people who aren't permanently housed. We care about all our citizens, and then this is what's happening with the NHS. So you care about all. It's an incongruence between what's said and what matters. We want, we want strong borders and whatever else, and then, you know, everything is an incongruence. And so, no wonder people are losing trust and faith. Why do you think we feel this need to lie about these things? Or, or do you think we just need to be, feel like we're constantly talking? No, lying is easier, I think, sometimes. It feels, I think it feels to people like, if I can say the right thing, then I have avoided an awkward moment right now. Whereas if I tell the truth, I have created for me a work that I am now going to be held accountable to. You know, it, um, I don't know, I can't even think about some, what an example might be, but... Uh, appraisal okay appraisal appraisal is roundly broken in every organization right it, i understand why it's necessary but um it doesn't work right? it's a contrivance now it's a way that we can um, manage out really bad talent though we should be able to do that without a number and it's a way for us to make sure that some people are not remunerated anymore it's a way to make sure we remunerate some people who would otherwise leave but it's a contrivance. And people are frustrated by the fact that their experience with this kind of normal curve of 
of, of appraisal doesn't deliver on the promise that they were told. You look on most of the websites of companies now, we're going to take an interest in your career, you're going to find people, senior people who will sponsor and mentor you, and, and, and the way we appraise doesn't match up that with that feedback they get doesn't match up with that. How often do you hear people say, well, I had a, a one-to-one with somebody, but he told me that everything was fine, and then I came to my appraisal and I got a three or a two, and I don't understand how, how can one experience not match the other? Well, that's because lying about it to the face of a person avoids and saying, yeah, yeah, you're doing fine, avoids that hour of discomfort. Uh, and then the, the, the punishing blow that that person receives is delivered by a machine. So your advice to leaders is, is bring that honesty back. Yeah, tell the truth. If you can't have, and, and I really think we should stop calling them these, but if you can't have a, a difficult conversation with people, you shouldn't be a leader. You shouldn't be a named leader. You shouldn't be a leader in an organization. The very minimum mundane requirement of a leader is to be able to have honest, difficult conversations. I like you. We go for a drink after work sometimes. But there's no getting away from the fact that your performance in the last six weeks has slipped radically. I want to know first if there's some circumstance in your life that I don't know about. You don't have to share that with me, but I think it's important to know if there's something going on. If there isn't, I think it's important for you to know that this kind of slip in performance can't be tolerated regardless of my friendship with you, nor will my friendship with you be protective of this. That's an honest conversation that says, I give a damn about you, but I cannot lie about what's going on. It also says, I do care. If you're dealing with an ailing parent, if you're a carer for somebody, if, if your relationship has had a difficulty, and I'm doing it in a way that says, you don't have to share any of that with me. I just want to know the truth about if that's happening. Let's see how we can arrange to give you some space. And to me, I mean, the people in HR, they always get left with that, like that's their job, but it's not. It's the direct line manager that should be able to have that conversation. And then HR should be left to help with, you know, mental health first aid or whoever an organization uses or referral to coaching or referral to another pathway through the NHS or private if the company has that. But it just seems like there's, there's a really honest interaction with, with somebody who deserves the best possible opportunity to thrive. And how, so how can making these principal decisions create more positive outcomes then? You know, that, that sounds like one tangible way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Are there other methods that you could share, other ways that people could, could bring that into the work? I think sometimes it's easier to, to, to have honest principal conversations if you do it more regularly. So we, we really recommend, uh, APS always recommends micro appraisals. Okay. The idea that you, I mean, I don't, I don't know how familiar people are with them, but it's probably will be, yeah. simply the idea that, that you have West Wing style conversations and, and they are predicated by one thing. I noticed something. So whether it's in a meeting and there's another client there that you know well and somebody new to the organization or new to this client speaks up in a certain way and afterwards you might say to them, I hear what you're saying with that. I just want you to know my experience with Mr. X is that he doesn't respond well to this. You've given them in that moment, I notice something and I'm, I'm not letting you get trampled by something, some information you don't have. Um, when somebody brings up an idea in a meeting and it's like, you know, I know you, you brought, I've never thought of that. It's really brilliant. You know, is there some way that we can explore that? 
it just feels like, yeah, she's had a great idea. How many times do people have great ideas and then somebody else steals it? Doesn't give them the attribution, doesn't even give them the credit for it, and suddenly it's run away from them before they know it. And it's not that everybody should take ownership of, and and of every idea, but get a little credit for it. it just seems like this stuff is the simplest kind of interpersonal. This win. is it. It feels like almost we're in the workplace. We're still children. We're still teenagers. We're not developed as adults the way we would hope to interact outside the world, mm-hmm. and. It, it just seems strange that we haven't been able to develop that in the workplace. Or do you think we've regressed? Rather I, than I don't think we've regressed. I mean, I just, I don't think it's ever been really good. Um, it, there has been something quite transactional analysis of the, of the interaction between managers and their reports, which has been almost parent to child in, in the arrangement instead of peer to peer. But it's not new. I just think there's real... There's real comfort in in rank, in being a you know I'm 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 a director of what is now the country's largest NHS um, trust, and you know there are lots of different bands in the NHS, and it's not uncommon for a band five nurse who's your it's your staff nurse to feel like they can't comment to a band eight nurse on something that they see and and to us we can't allow that because that's patient safety as a as a key and in organizations how many great ideas insights prescience of of challenges and problems are lost because the person's only been here two years and you've really got to get your feet wet before i want to hear from you in a meeting it just seems so dumb to allow (laughs) it frustrates you to is it to allow tradition to allow formality to, to to allow malfunction you know malfunctioning tradition to, to to impact performance doesn't make any sense to me i want the best ideas presented always if somebody sees an angle of the challenge that i don't see they must tell me if they don't they're abdicating their responsibility and if i'm not facilitating it i'm not doing my job and i should be punished for that i'm the person that the buck stops with i'm the i'm the person that can never run away from responsibility for outcomes. Um, I'm the person that when the gale blows, I stand as the, as the blocker and my people can stand in my lee. Um, I'm the person that when credit shines, I have to make sure I get out the way because there's nothing worse than being a solar panel for praise, right? <laughs> being the only person that gets it while everybody else is standing in the shadow. That's especially important for a company that has my name in it. Um, it's my job to challenge my people to develop themselves. You know, one of my one of my colleagues has gone from being the person who is in charge of our website to being one of our key client-facing coaches over the course of three years. Not because we don't need our website done. We just have somebody <laughs> else who does that now um, and does our social media and stuff. But because it was just very clear from the moment we started that A, she had an aptitude and B, had a, a real a real skill for this work that she hadn't necessarily been trained to at that point. So we, did, we, we got her involved in training so that now, three years later, a role that doesn't resemble where she came, started from. And it's not because we're intuitive and uh, innovative and all that nonsense. It is simply every person, every every person who comes to work in good consciousness should have that kind of 
that lens offered them the idea that well you may have come in in um, this silo of this business but it seems like you've got real aptitude here and if there's an interest then we'll facilitate that it doesn't matter if you're a team of 15 like us or a team of um, you know tens of thousands like the big consultancies out there brand leadership is about ethical the ethical stance uh, my my kids once um, I, I remember coming back home and seeing them with a WWJD bracelet on and my family is not religious <laughs> and so I was like what the hell is that what are, you, what are you doing with that and they were like what would John do and I was like I was quite moved by it really because it's it's the idea of that's also what leadership is people being able to say with real clarity of insight under x circumstances john would do this and it doesn't mean you have to do that same thing but it means you always know where i would stand so you've been called a lot of things in your life you know you've been recognized in a lot of ways you're an mba star you're a psychologist you're an entrepreneur you're a black man you're a gay man mm -hmm. how do you view yourself how would you what would you like your legacy to be how would you like to be remembered oh i don't worry about that legacy it's a, it's a wonderfully subjective thing. I'll get better when I die. Everybody does. A <laughs> um, man of principle? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that'd be, it'd be nice to be known as that now rather than when I, <laughs> when I pop my clogs. Um, you know, my, we, we all have, uh, all of us in the business have business cards that have our title on, but then also have our, our real title on. So my, obviously, I'm the CEO of this organization or managing director, depending on your perspective. But my title is Everyday Jedi. That's, that's, that's who I am. People who interact with me know that I am here with them in this moment, present, interested and engaged in solving whatever challenge it is that's in front of me. People here know that I will use every skill and every attention that I have to this the furthering of that and there's something a little bit magic about it which i enjoy but that's that's the i'm 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 the everyday jedi john thank you for joining us pleasure thanks for listening to this change board future talent podcast if you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to subscribe or leave a comment on itunes soundcloud or stitcher check out more stories like this on www.changeboard.com or follow us on Twitter with the handle at ChangeBoard. We look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast very soon.